welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercane.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover why we're in Vietnam in Hearts in Atlantis. Let's start the show. Sully John attends the funeral of fellow Vietnam veteran Dick Pagano, which causes him to reminisce about his time in Vietnam. In particular, he thinks about a helicopter crash and the ensuing firefight that put his units in danger, and then an incident later in the day when soldiers, including Ronnie Malenfant, terrorize a village before Lieutenant Diefenbaker, also attending the funeral, has another soldier shot before the incident escalates to My Lai levels. Sully John is haunted by a Vietnamese woman that Malenfant bayonets to death, seeing her throughout the rest of his life. After leaving the funeral, Sully John is stuck in a traffic jam where he hallucinates items falling from the sky, including Bobby Garfield's baseball glove and a low man's yellow coat. The ghost of the Vietnamese woman speaks for the first time, saying she'll keep Sully John safe. The hallucination stops, and Sully John dies in the driver's seat of his car with Bobby Garfield's glove in his lap. I think I covered everything that happened in this story, Jay. Yeah, that was pretty much the full text. <laughs> and even reading that, you could see that there's a little lot, lot of confusing because there's a lot of flashbacks and the story's not told linearly as we sort of jump back and forth from Sully John going to the funeral, back to Vietnam, being at the funeral, reminiscing about things that happened in Vietnam, then hallucinating things that happened. And so there's a lot of time jumps as well as back and forth between what's real and what's not real in addition to those flashbacks. Yeah. And I kind of sort of feel like it's still up for debate as to whether or not that was a hallucination mm. because the baseball glove appears and remains. So that part's, that part's definitely real. And everybody seems to be undamaged, unhurt, and alive after the fact. But how did the baseball glove get there? Yeah, that's a really good question that I'm not sure I know the answer to. And it's not even just the baseball glove that he possibly could have created out of his mind, Sully John, because it's the one that's been changed by Blind Willie. Mm -hmm. It has Bobby's name scratched out and rewritten, and it's and it's been aged. It's not the it's not the version that Sully John would have remembered. He remembers details of the, or he sees details of the glove that are how the glove is now, as we learned in the last story. So it is more than just a remembrance or something that he dreamed into being. It seems like it is the actual real glove. Yeah. From this time period. So, And, and we'll loop back to that a little bit more when we get to our Dark Tower thinnies. Ooh, exciting. But we want to start off with the fact that Sully John is still in Vietnam, even though the war has been over for 25 years when the story takes place. Um, the epigraph and the first line of the story are, when someone dies, you think about the past. And this story mm -hmm. starts with uh, Sully John getting ready to attend a funeral, and he's definitely thinking about the past. As, uh, Pagano has died, and now he's thinking about everything that happened to him in his last days in Vietnam and the effect that it's had on him. And when he and Diefenbaker are talking in the alleyway outside the funeral parlor, they kind of come up with this idea that the war isn't over until everybody who fought in it has died. So that's why, you know, that's why they're still in Vietnam. They 
they never left because the war continues for as long as they do. And it's kind of like something you reminded me of the other day. Like there's that saying that you don't really die until everybody who knew you has forgotten you or has died themselves. So right. as long as you are in somebody's memory, you still exist in a, in a way. And the, the Vietnam War, maybe most wars, maybe all wars are kind of like that, that the soldiers who come back from those wars are haunted by the war and they can never really escape it. They're never not in Vietnam for the rest of their lives to the point where one of them suggests, well, maybe everything after that helicopter ride out of, out of Vietnam was, it has been a hallucination, right? Like <laughs> we're just dreaming this. We're in a recovery ward somewhere at a hospital getting patched up and everything the last, you know, decades have been just a, a drug induced dream. Yes. Another thing that continues in this story, or, or that is a continuation from previous sections of Hearts in Atlantis, is the us versus them motif. Hmm. Here, we get it in the form of veterans and non-veterans. And it used to be like during the, the story of Hearts in Atlantis, a lot of it was the people who were for the war versus the people who protested the war. Now that the war has ended, it no longer matters if you were for or against the war as much as it matters if you actually served in the war or you didn't. And a lot of the the observations that Sully John makes about people and how he categorizes them, it sort of sounds like the way Roland might categorize people. <laughs> like they're either gunslingers or they're not gunslingers. Right. Now, in the parlance of, of Roland's thoughts and things like this, there's a nobility, there's a romanticism to being a gunslinger in addition to being a real hard case to being to, to having that steel. And I think that there's a lot of that's where a lot of the overlap is for soldiers and veterans that there's they they had to develop that steel. They had to be a hard case, at least for the time that they were in a war. But so much of that just lingers in their personality. Like everybody carries a Zippo and, you know, they 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 talk in a certain way and they 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 hang out and reminisce in a very specific way. Yes. Um, and they don't share those reminiscences with people who didn't experience it too. Right. Yeah, because you don't get the sense in the story that Sully John and Diefenbaker knew each other for very long. Like their units sort of merged after the helicopter crash. And, you know, it wasn't that long before Sully John was shipped out because of his own injuries. But yet they have this bond that is very strong. And they can, like you said, talk about certain specific things that only they share. And in fact, at one point, um, th they say they weren't buddies, but it was a word that they used because there was no word invented for what they had really been to each other. So even though they all call each other buddies, that's not what they were. They were just people together. And I was thinking, as you mentioned Roland earlier, maybe the word that hadn't been invented to what they had really been to each other is quartet, right? Yeah. Like they were they were drawn together and their their lives are intermingled in such a way that they were a team and a group. And so that word that hadn't been invented yet is quartet. I like that. Probably should have saved that for Dark Tower Thinnies, but <laughs> we're just we're just spreading them out nice nicely throughout. So the the last part of this sort of still in Vietnam piece that we wanted to talk about is at the end when what may or may not be the hallucination is all of these things falling from the sky that Sully John sees and tries to take cover from and eventually they start to hit people in the head and do damage to cars and he's he's totally freaking out and a lot of this just seems to be like 
stand-ins for pieces of America. Like there's this old souvenir lampshade that falls down and there's a cell mm-hmm. phone and there's pianos and there's just a bunch of odd remnants of everything that represents America in some way, I wonder. Um, because it's not things that seem to have any specific use. And it's not clear to us why these are the things that are falling from the sky or whether that be actually falling from the sky or what Sully John is thinking is falling from the sky. But it's a bunch of things that don't seem to have really any connection to anything else. And there's the line, the the worthlessness of the bric-a-brac of America. And just the word bric-a-brac makes you kind of think of things that are not necessarily vital to life, right? And it's further amplified with the worthlessness. Like these are things that speak to maybe the American condition, maybe American culture. You know, pianos aren't unique to America for sure, but uh, neither is a a door full of ledgers. But there's something about the combination of items that sort of says like this is American culture at a low level and or at maybe like a base level, like a foundational way. And when it's all heaped in a pile, scattered around the, the highway and lodged in people's skulls, it's like, it's utterly worthless. Yeah. And even when it was stacked up neatly and hadn't fallen from the sky yet, it's probably stuff that people could live without. So maybe it's that kind of one last gasp of Sully John's life thinking like, is this what we fought for? Is this what we went to Vietnam for and died for? was so that we could preserve this way of life. And I wonder how worthwhile it was. Yeah. And then maybe the one thing that survives is the baseball glove, which his friend had. So maybe that's part of it, that relationship, that he has something that is an actual relationship and that might be worth having. Yeah. I'd say the the baseball glove itself, I think, has true value. And what it represents is it's the most valuable thing that that there is yeah is the human connection that it represents yeah so even with those things falling you get the sense that that sully john is haunted by his time in vietnam but he's actually really haunted as well yeah he, he there is literally a a ghost that is following him around that he has seen since he was on the helicopter that took him away from the firefight where he was injured um he sees uh, an old mamasan that Ronnie Malenfant killed, and she's there in the helicopter with him, and she continues to follow him throughout the rest of his life. As I said in the recap, like she's there in the hospital, she's there in the car with him, she sometimes sees him in the house, or he sometimes sees her in the house. Like she's always there. And even though he has told people that, and the psychiatrist says, Oh, it's part of your PTSD and something you're dealing with, and he logically knows that's true he also realizes i am actually being haunted by this woman yeah there are details of this haunting that i i interpret as this is entirely an outgrowth of his own guilt of that moment like i don't think that there is the ghost of this vietnamese woman following him around and making his life terrible i think that he couldn't figure out a way to process his experience that day mm-hmm. and he felt so incredibly tortured by what happened to this woman she represented everything terrible that happened that day everything that terrible that happened the entire time he was fighting in vietnam all summed up into one moment one atrocity that represented them all and eclipsed them all and she stuck with him as a reminder something that he wouldn't forgive himself 
maybe in the same way that Blind Willie wouldn't forgive himself. Right. So he had his own strange twist of Catholic forgiveness, or at least the penance for his crimes or the things that he felt guilty about. So here we've got SJ who basically has manifested his own constant reminder in a very, at least at first, for like, it seems like for the first couple of decades, it's kind of unpleasant. Like every time she showed up, he was freaked out by this. He was scared that if anybody really found out, like like his life would be ruined, you know? And then later on in life, when he had the successful car dealership and he had millions of dollars in bank loans, he knew that he couldn't tell people like, yeah, I, I see the ghost of a woman who was murdered in front of me in Vietnam every once in a while. Like that just doesn't fly with people. No. But by the end, she sort of became a comfort to him. Yes. Like he would talk to her and have conversations with her, one-sided obviously, but conversations Mm -hmm. and just sort of treated her as an old friend. Yeah. And by the time he died in the, in his car during the traffic jam, she was kind of like, not just a comfort, but it's like she was waiting patiently for him to reach the end of his journey Yes, so that she could be there to help him in a way that maybe he wanted to help her, but couldn't. Or I think the, the psychological fracture that her murder caused with SJ, I think is like how she reflected that back on him by comforting him at the moment that he died. Yes. And you said how, you know, if he were to tell anyone, you know, people would think he was crazy and how could he get all those millions of dollars in bank loans because of it. Mm-hmm. But when he's talking with Diefenbaker, he he had told Diefenbaker in a drunken reunion at some point that he had seen her. Yep. And Diefenbaker's like, yeah, no big deal. He's like, we're all haunted in some way. Like, mm-hmm. there are things that haunt me too. And you think the guy who lent you the money in the bank, if he was in Vietnam, he's probably haunted by something too. So we're all a little bit crazy. Um, and any of us who were over there. And that, that gets back to what you were saying earlier about how there is that uh, way that the veterans can speak to each other about what happened over there that's different and that sets them apart. Um, and Deef admits he is haunted too, and he's really haunted by what happened with Ronnie Malenfant and his role in shutting down the potential incident, making it worse. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't order necessarily Sly Slocum to shoot shoot another soldier and stop it. But he gave enough of an indication with his eyebrows and a look that he, this needed to stop and Sly made the shot. And um, even though Deef tried to stop things, he's still haunted by what happened that day under his command. Yeah. And it's Malenfant who manifests himself to Diefenbaker yeah. the way that the old Mama-san does to SJ, right? And he's like, he's there. He's, you know, true to life. I can still see and smell the the whiteheads on his chin it's like like he's just so fully realized and the ronnie malenfant that we got to know in the hearts in atlanta story is an abrasive awful person to spend time around <laughs> and it seems like he only got worse when he was in vietnam yep. and that's the guy that's the version of ronnie who stephen baker is haunted by it's not the not the cleaned up calm you know following the 12 steps in AA right. Ronnie Melfant that he encountered a few years, you know, prior to the story that he's like, yeah, I already got forgiveness and found my higher power and everything's good in the world. <laughs> right. But it's the crazy Ronnie Melfant that murdered the old mama son and would have kept on murdering if, uh, 
Sly Slocum hadn't blown the head off of one of his other soldiers. So Yes. And again, we get yet another story. So what is this, four in a row now, where Carol Gerber makes an appearance. Well, she's not mm-hmm. an actual appearance, but Carol is in the story, but we're not given her perspective. It is told through Sully John. And as before, when you said early on in this book, the big divide was whether you were for the war in Vietnam or against it. Mm-hmm. And that's what caused Sully John to break up with Carol, was that he could not handle the fact that she was against the war. And you know, he actually signed up to go and yeah. was excited by the opportunity to what he saw as defend his country and his way of life in Vietnam. And you can tell by the end of his time in Vietnam, he and everyone else were like discouraged by the war and not for it at all. They still did their mm-hmm. do- job. They still did their duty. But he could see Carol's point at that point. And even though he didn't respect that, it's to your point earlier, it's not the four against the war. It's that she wasn't over here and I was, and that's the difference between us. Yeah. But he's still sort of haunted by that, his time with her. And he's even more haunted by the fact that he knew that Carol loved Bobby yeah. more, more, than, more, than, more than she loved him. He could tell by the way she looked at him that that's who she truly had a connection with, and it wasn't Sully John at all. So even though we knew that from that perspective when they were 10 or 11 years old, the fact that Sully knew it too and felt that way um, is really, as we said, sort of haunting. Yeah. Yeah. Sully John with his bolo bouncer and hopes and <laughs> dreams to become a magician when he grew up. He didn't read as the the astute observer that <laughs> no. it turns out he was, you yes. know, and yeah, he he knew the score. He picked up on it apparently a lot more clearly than Bobby did. Yes. Yeah. It, it's interesting because like we're talking about these characters being haunted by various people. Um, it seems like everybody in this book, even the other parts of the book, are haunted by Carol. Mm-hmm. Like like because at this point in in time, Carol's a memory for everyone. Carol has apparently died, and even before that happened, she was involved in a horrible tragedy where innocent people were killed in a protest explosion and she got caught up in a cult or something right so all the disappointment and aggression that Solijan feels towards carol because of her position on the war and then the activities that she took place in in terms of protests and then ultimately the the murder of of those uh chemical workers or was it college students chemistry the students other? yeah yeah chemistry students um you know like he hates her for that, but it's really kind of like the hate of someone who truly cares about you. It's the way that you get angry at, you know, your spouse or a parent might get angry at their child, like, because they, they had a brush with danger or because they got hurt. One of the emotions you feel about that is anger and rage. Like, how could you jeopardize your safety in such a way? So it's like, he loved Carol and he mm-hmm. cared about her since he was a, a, a little boy and they had a relationship that ended over politics and then she went in this crazy direction as far as he was concerned and ended in tragedy. Like her whole life was a series of tragic events and he just wishes that she were happy, wishes that she were alive, wishes that maybe they could have been together or something. But um, I think it's just he's haunted by all those regrets. and. That's true of um, Pete, too, yep. like towards the end of Hearts in Atlantis. Like Pete's like, I don't know what happened to her. It's certainly true of Willie. So, you know, we don't know what happened to Bobby, 
No. All we know is that Bobby kind of disappeared when he was 11 years old. So a lot of hauntings. Yes. And the one that they all share seems to be Carol Gerber. Yeah. So four for four with stories being told by other people about Carol. We've got one more story left. Maybe we'll hear from Carol. I've not read ahead yet, so I don't know. Find out soon. Maybe King will write a sequel <laughs> called Song of Carol. <laughs> that, might, that, that might work. <laughs> So we've already shared at least one, possibly two Dark Tower Thinnies, but let's get into our Dark Tower Thinnies proper, Gay. I'll kick us off. During that conversation between Sully John and Diefenbaker in the alley by the, the funeral parlor, we get a whole story about Ted. Ted Brodigan, yeah. the man himself. I was very shocked by this, just because the events that happened in low men in yellow coats only seem to take place over at most maybe a month and a half or two months. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was it was a summer. Uh, he moved in above Bobby's apartment. And while Sully John obviously knew who he was, I never got the sense that Sully John like spent a lot of time with him or that Ted had any sort of impact on Sully John in that story. Um, obviously, Ted had a great impact on on Bobby, but then, you know, after Ted leaves and Bobby and Sully John, you know, separate, like, I, I guess I was sort of surprised that Sully John had such a close remembrance of what was basically just an old man who lived above my best friend's apartment for a few weeks when I was 10 or 11, that he remembered enough details to be able to share not only an anecdote, but some of the personality traits that Ted had. Yeah. But as we noted, Sully John was a pretty astute observer of the human condition, so I, I, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that he had a, a pretty good beat on Ted. And it's not really in the text so much, but we know that Bobby spent all of his time with Carol and SJ, and they probably spent a lot of time at each other's houses. So whenever they were at Bobby's house, they were, you know, Ted was around, and Ted was a really memorable guy. He doesn't talk to kids the way other adults talk to kids, and he has a lot of really interesting things to say. So I think that, you know, if you're that 10, 11-year-old range and you, you met this old man who had lots of really interesting, fun stories, you'd probably remember him. Yeah, I suppose so. I guess I, guess I had that missing from my childhood, so <laughs> that's why I did. didn't have a crotchety old man move into your neighborhood? No, I guess that was just my grandfather. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so as I noted in the recap, one of the falling objects that Sully John notices is a flapping yellow coat that looks like a duster. Mm. So definitely a link to the low men in yellow coats. Which, of course, is a link to the Dark Tower. Yes. So an actual Dark Tower thingy. Yeah. The rest of these are a little bit lighter. They're more of a reference to other parts of this book itself, but there were a lot of references to Lord of the Flies mm. here where maybe wasn't expecting them. Um, but King keeps inserting them. It, it, they're right there in the text in Low Men in Yellow Coats. It's the book that changes Bobby's relationship to, to reading and stories. But in this story, we learn about how Ronnie Malenfant wanted to put the enemy's heads on sticks. And in Hearts in Atlantis, it was the laughing at Stokely Jones moment, yep. of course, that, you know, uh, was the Lord of the Flies thing. And then in Low Men in Yellow Coats, 
Bobby's dream of his mother being chased by her boss, which was kind of sort of actually happening in real life, um, was the Lord of the Flies moment. But here it's like, it's just full on. This is as close to Lord of the Flies being enacted in re- in reality for these characters as we get. They're in a place where they are, they have stopped acting like human beings. They're just killing wantonly and yelling things like, we're going to put your head on sticks. Yep. And that's about as Lord of the Flies as it can get. I would agree. And then another Lord of the Flies moment is when Diefenbaker talks about how it was like he was the only grown-up, only he didn't feel like a grown-up. And he's talking about that moment when he had to make the decision to order one of his soldiers to kill another one of his soldiers. Mm. And he was the only ranking person there besides Willie Shearman who could have given that order, and he was checked out. Right. So he was the only grown-up. And the word grown-up and a grown-up among crazy children is also spot-on for Lord of the Flies. That's right. And and it's also a direct echo to what Ted asks Bobby or challenges Bobby with towards the end of Loman and Yellow Coats. He's like, are you sure grown-ups don't need saving? Because it sure as hell seemed like Diefenbaker needed a little bit of help that day. Yeah. So it's kind of like if Bobby were following the story along, just like we are. He's like, oh, now I understand what Ted was talking about. I get it. I get it now. So I I had noted in previous episodes that the way that a lot of the stories in this book end are interesting. The first story ends with Bobby getting a package from Carol with a letter. The second story ends similarly with Pete getting a letter from Carol. Mm Mm-hmm. The third story ends Blind Willie with a lot of newspaper references about Carol as he's flipping through his scrapbook Yep, or, or very close to the end. Then this story also ends with another newspaper clipping. And even though the entire story is told basically close to Sully John, after he dies, we get one last scene in which Diefenbaker's wife says, hey... Isn't this your buddy? And she pulls out a newspaper clipping of Sully John's death on the highway. Mm-hmm. And so, again, King's ending a lot of these stories in a very similar fashion with a newspaper or letter to sort of tie up the loose ends. I like that. Nice uh, pickup on the patterns there. Yeah. Did you find, speaking of Diefenbaker at the end of the story, did you find that it kind of took you out of it a little bit to suddenly switch perspectives to this character who? We hadn't been in his head yet. Yeah. Yep. And, and and he's the one who takes us across the finish line. It just felt like, like, I know narratively, there's just no one else, you know, no, no other perspective, but I guess we could have ended on the highway with SJ's death, but that might not have been so clear. Yeah. And they really, you know, I think it gets to the end, you know, the, the story begins with Sully John thinking about the past because of a death. And I think that that's mm-hmm. a little bit of what Diefenbaker is doing too, right? So there's a death and now he's thinking about the past again as well. And we do get that nice little line at the end. Um, Wars died one tiny piece at a time. Each piece, something that felt like a memory. Each lost like an echo that fades in the winding hills. In the end, even war ran up the white flag, or so he hoped. He hoped that in the end, even war surrendered. So I think it's trying to maybe and on a little bit of a positive note that perhaps they can put Vietnam behind them at some point. 
Um, of course, as we said earlier, the fact that it has to be done because everyone dies yeah, might not be the best way to do it, but unfortunately, that's the way that uh, Diefenbaker's doing it. But yeah, it did it did take me out a little bit, but again, I'm not sure how else, if, if Sully John's dead, there's nowhere else we can get that narrator, unless we yeah. have an omniscient narrator, which King has avoided thus far, so. Well, that brings us to our fun stuff. What do you got for fun stuff, Jay? I have got a great line. The look seemed to say that Bobby was killing her, and she was glad. She would die that way until the stars fell from the sky and the rivers ran uphill, and all the words to Louie Louie were known. <laughs> Damn. I mean, no one's ever going to figure out all the words to Louie Louie. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but wow, I mean, that's what Sully John kept seeing. Every time he looked at Carol, hoping to get her attention in a childhood crush kind of thing he found her looking at bobby that way and man to have somebody look at you like like that yep that's it's pretty great um another fun stuff line that amused me anyway um sully john sees a woman in the traffic jam wearing a severe brown business suit so of course i thought of deadpool and she clearly got the memo on what color pants to wear that day <laughs> So I, I, I have a timely fun stuff, Jay. Either last night or this morning, Stephen King commented on a tweet that David Crosby put out. Somebody had asked David Crosby what he thought about the doors. And basically, David Crosby said, it, the bass and the piano were middling at best. The drums sucked. And Jim Morrison was not much of a poet or a singer or a lyricist. And so he basically poo-pooed the doors entirely wow and stephen king tweeted something along the lines of um i i really dug the doors but i never thought much of david crosby and i was like oh <laughs> wow go go for it king but you would think that that was just you know maybe something that he was thinking of in 2019 but let me present to you this is from Defen baker's head right near the end of the story Stephen Baker thinks, let the children join hands and dance around the blaze, singing corny old Crosby, Stills, and Nash songs. So there you mm, go. Corny, huh? Not, not a fan of uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Not Crosby, not Stills, and not Nash. Not Nash. Somehow, I, I have a feeling, though, that I bet Stephen King would be okay with Neil Young. Yeah, I suppose. He seems like he might be okay with Neil Young. Neil Young is Canadian and being from Maine's basically like being Canadian. So <laughs> Mainers bring on your hate mail. Yeah. Well, you know, Canada is a vast country and you could be from a part of Canada that is thousands and thousands of miles from Maine. So uh, another fun stuff item I had on my list was the falling piano that uh, SJ hears coming and then sees crash into the road. It just kind of reminded me of the whale in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And this is a whale that randomly manifests itself into existence high above a, a planet in space and then realizes that it exists, realizes that it is a thing, realizes that it has thoughts, realizes it's alive, names itself appropriately as a whale, <laughs> realizes that there's wind blowing at it faster and faster, and has all of these thoughts right before it crashes into the <laughs> surface of the planet below. Um, there was another line that I liked a lot, and it's when the ledgers were falling, 
Sully John thought that their clapping covers sounded like applause. I thought that that's such a wonderful way to describe the sound, and it totally paints a, a, a perfect picture for me. But if you think of it like applause, it was one of the last things that we we hear about mm. that fall. So it's like things start falling, then more things start falling, then so much is falling, and then applause. It's like, good show, and then <laughs> applause. So it all worked. Everything clicks together. Good job. Well, speaking of good show, Jay, that's going to do it for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover the final story in Hearts of Atlantis, Heavenly Shades of Night Are Falling. We will also, next episode, wrap up this book. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. I have to explain it it's a shitty joke i have got a great line um and that line is <laughs> written here in my notes that i will now read it's made up of words and letters